This is Justin Ford for From the Frontline. Tonight we are dealing with ministering to the persecuted. In the studio with me is Dr. Peter Hammond, the founder of Frontline Fellowship, who has been involved in serving persecuted Christians for over 40 years in 38 countries. Last week in episode 241, we began a discussion on the persecution of the Christian church and established what precisely is meant by the word persecution in this context. This week we will be discussing the lessons Dr. Hammond has learned over a lifetime of ministering to the persecuted church. Dr. Hammond, for those listeners who missed last week's episode, please remind us why we are discussing the persecuted church at this point in time and give the listeners a recap of what is meant by the persecuted church. Yes, so this coming Sunday, the 13th of November, is the second Sunday of November, and therefore it is set as the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. The reason for this is because of the 11th of the 11th or 11th of November, uh, remembering the armistice, the end of the First World War, and so over the last century, 11th of November has tended to be a day when people remember those who've died in the wars. And so uh, some years ago, uh, basically about 30-odd years ago, uh, I and other leaders of different missions, Persecute Church, got together, and uh, we were actually in, in Chicago discussing how we can respond to this, and the idea was IDOP, International Day of Prayer for the Persecute Church, and we would take the Africa section, so that's why we got IDOP Africa, IDOP-Africa.org website, and uh, and also IDOP Africa web, a Facebook page, and we seek to promote uh, a focused prayer on the second Sunday of November to remind Christians of those who are being persecuted for their faith, not just in history, in the past, to learn from, but also now, needing our support and practical help, uh, speaking up for them, praying for them, and getting such aid as we can to them. And so uh, that's at 13th of November, this coming uh, Sunday, is an international day of prayer with and for the persecuted church. And we need to remember that there's over 400 million Christians in the world today who live under governments, that's 67 governments of the world who severely restrict religious freedom and actually persecute Christians uh, to the extent of killing Christians in many cases. So anything from 200,000 to up to 400,000 Christians are killed every year for their faith. And uh, obviously some of the worst countries in the world for Christians would be places like Afghanistan and North Korea, China, uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, but uh, the persecution is violent in many other countries, you know, Somalia, Eritrea, uh, Pakistan, and so on, many places where Christians can be killed for their faith, imprisoned for their faith, uh, suffer serious bodily harm for their faith. Now, this doesn't cover the people who discriminated against for their faith, which happens virtually everywhere in the world. If you, for your conscience sake, say, well, there's only two genders, or marriage can only be between a man and a woman, or no, I will not take this forced vaccination. You could lose your job, be kicked out of school. Now, we're not counting that. Um, so that's severe. That can hurt somebody. It can really influence their life. It can lose them their job and all sorts of things. But we're not talking about that kind of persecution and discrimination against Christians, which is happening almost worldwide, uh, depending on what kind of medical tyrants and political tyrants you have in your area. But we're talking about governments that actually ban Bibles and uh, imprison or kill Christians. Dr. Hammond, as a missionary, would you say that a, a missionary in today's world can be described as someone supporting the persecuted church? Well, if you want to support the persecuted church, you have to be a missionary because it tends to be somewhere else and you've got to travel there uh, to physically help them. But um, anybody 
involved in serving the persecuted church may be a missionary, but that doesn't mean every missionary is serving the persecuted church. Our missionary is trying to reach unreached people in areas where there may be full religious freedom. So, uh, yes, in our mission, uh, missionary work and serving the persecuted church go together because we work in restricted access areas, in war-torn areas and areas where um, missions is either not allowed or is considered too dangerous. Uh, Last Hammond, you described some horrific accounts of persecution, but you've also had a very interesting first-hand account from Zambia that vividly illustrates how to help the persecuted church. Yes, so uh, it was 35 years ago, 1987, I was leading a frontline mission team across the border, uh, across Kazangula Ferry, one place in in the world where four countries meet, uh, Namibia, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and Botswana. And we were going from Botswana across the Zambezi River into Zambia. And we were resting on the Zambian side. And at that time, Zambia was a socialist country. Socialist humanism was the official government policy and had a bit of a doctrinaire Marxist in uh, Kenneth Gohinder, who was the dictator, uh, president for life, as he liked to call himself. Uh, he had been in power for 26 years without any uh, rivals really allowed. And the people had the freedom to vote for one party, one candidate, uh, one box, one option, um, and they call that democracy. Well, uh, while there we refused to pay a bribe at the border post, so we were uh, stripped and beaten and uh, thrown to cells covered in human filth and deprived of water and food and blindfolded, transported from the city of Livingston to the capital of Lusaka, uh, blindfolded the whole way, and then we were thrown to overcrowded prison in cells which were 15 feet by 25 feet, crammed with an average of 60 prisoners per cell. So there were no beds, no furnishing, no plumbing, no electricity in these cells. Uh, the whole prison was one big stinking disease factory. And you know, bearing in mind that Kenneth Gohunda had written in his book A Humanist in Africa, I could not agree with the Calvinism of my parents. Now, his parents were Bible-believing evangelical Christians, evangelists. They'd been trained in Livingstonian Malawi. Uh, they'd been part of the church in South African Presbyterian, been involved in, in wonderful work for the Lord. Uh, but this communist son of theirs says he couldn't agree with the Calvinism of his parents. He des- did not believe in the uh, depravity of man. He believed in the goodness of man. Now, interesting, here he writes a book, A Humanist in Africa, and he had big billboards all over socialist humanism. That was the ideology of Zambia under Kenneth Gunder's dictatorship. And um, now, when he was locked up by the evil, demonic British colonials in Lusaka Central Prison, he had a cell to himself with beds and sheets and pillows and um, couch and desk and pens and paper and bookshelves and gramophone and three cooked meals a day. That was the evil British colonials who believe in the depravity of man, but he believed in the goodness of man. He shoved 60-odd prisoners in a cell, like which he had for himself, uh, where they had no bedding and no electricity and no plumbing and no access to libraries or anything like that. And uh, uh, interesting uh, that um, most of the prisoners in Lusaka Central, when I was locked up there in 1987 under Coenda, I was a presidential detainee, most of the prisoners had no... um, day in courts. Most of them were remand prisoners. Some had been there eight years. Eight years and they hadn't had their day in court yet. Some cases they couldn't find a witness. And here's this poor guy. He's still in civilian clothes. He hasn't got a prison uniform yet because he's a remand prisoner. So you could immediately tell the difference between remand and prisoners because prisoners wore prison uniform and the others wore the tattered remains of their civilian clothes because they hadn't yet been convicted. So how's that for believing in the goodness of man? Uh, so with our shoes taken away, walking barefoot, with cuts and bleeding feet amongst the filth, 
we could only imagine how many infections and diseases God had to protect us from. Uh, so in our prison cell, the presidential detainee cell, cell 11, Lusaka Central Prison, there was a whole lot of fascinating people. I mean, there was a man who had been a major in the Zambian army who had been who'd studied in uh, Sandhurst in England. Uh, you know, and why was he there? And he had said sanctions would hurt Zambia more than South Africa. Unpatriotic things. Say throw him in prison. Um, there was a Hindu businessman whose company was obviously coveted by the government, so they threw him in prison. And uh, uh, there were there was a businessman from Mali traveling, a tall Muslim, had tried to pray each day towards Mecca five times a day, which is very difficult when there's so many people in a small cell. We had to make space for him. Um, and this uh, man had just been thrown in prison because... Uh, well, they want to do confiscate everything he had. Um, there's all sorts of people in there. Well, the one man that was there plainly because he's a Christian, I could see, was Isaiah Moyer, 26-year-old black South African from Soweto. He'd been imprisoned on trumped-up charges on being a South African spy. Actually, he'd lent money to some ANC refugees in Lusaka who had decided, rather than repaying him, why not accuse him of being a spy? I mean, that's an easy thing to do. You don't need any evidence. And so Isaiah had been severely tortured, he had pussy sores all over his body where red-hot pokers had been pushed into his skin straight from the fire. So the, those would swell up and then burst and swell up and burst. Ah, oh, terrible. His knees were calloused from the many hours he'd spent kneeling on the concrete floor praying to the Lord. So when, by God's grace, um, uh, I was able to escape from this prison, I mean, after uh, 16 days of, of incarceration, finally the prison doors were open and we were set free. Uh, that, that was an experience in itself because um, a whole lot of our friends overseas had campaigned for our release and who had demonstrated outside the Zambian embassy in London and in Washington, D.C., friends we'd made over the years. And, uh, you know, it, there's no doubt that church is the keys of the kingdom. What we bind will be bound, what we loose will be loosed. And prison doors were open, so that was great. Well, I determined to campaign to get Isaiah out of prison. I mean, it's better to campaign for a single individual because that's... It's easy for people to resonate and identify on one. I knew his story. Uh, so uh, I uh, campaigned for the release of Azar, first of all, by writing and then by going to the International Society of Human Rights Conference in Frankfurt, which was coming up in, in January of, of 1988 in Germany. And I used that as a launching pad for my first overseas ministry tour, where I was all over the United States and London. I testified to government officials of the atrocities I'd witnessed and uh, documented uh, the what the communists were doing in Mozambique and Angola, and, and I got on the BBC World Service. Well, on the BBC World Service, I thought, let me particularly bring Isaiah Moyer's case, as I had also several other places like uh, in Frankfurt at the International Society of Human Rights. So later I heard that prison wardens, Lusaka Central, had rushed with their radios, shortwave radios, to Isaiah Moyer in Sullivan and Lusaka Central saying, Isaiah, Isaiah, that white South African missionary who was locked up here, with you. He's speaking on the radio. He's talking about you. So Isaiah got to hear the tail end of my interview on BBC World Service as I gave people his prison address and requested people to send care packages with salt and soap and sugar and vitamins and pens and pencils, paper and so on. Well, Isaiah told me that from that time on, he was never mistreated again. Forget about torture. He wasn't even mistreated. They didn't even talk badly to him. Male sacks of letters and parcels were dragged into a cell. He became the most popular person in prison. He had so many trading items, everybody wanted to please him. People couldn't do enough favors for him because he had he had the best 
everything in the prisoner. And so the BBC World Service radio program had raised him to celebrity status in the prison. And so the prison guards now treated him with great respect. Soon he is set free, allowed to travel back to South Africa. He's reunited to his wife and his children. So this was my very first experience of seeing what an influence a Western Christian can have through prayer and pressure. Because publicity provides protection for the persecuted. As our Lord Jesus taught in Luke 18, 1 to 5, even an unjust judge will do what is right in response to persistent prayer and pressure. And as virtually every Marxist or Muslim dictatorship in the world is a beneficiary of vast amounts of foreign aid from Western nations, I mean, who knows why, but they are, well, this provides leverage. So most dictators prefer foreign aid to foreign prisoners. They prefer dollars and euros and pounds to prisoners. So if given a choice, they will set prisoners free in order to continue to receive the Western dollars, pounds, euros. So whatever we bind will be bound, whatever we loose will be loose. By the power of prayer through persistent pressure, Christians can actually see the powers of darkness limited, prison doors opened and captives sent free. And that was my first experience of taking a case, campaigning, praying for, and seeing such a wonderful answer to prayer. Uh, Dr. Hammond, you've just mentioned how you learned about the power of publicity. What other lessons have you learned from working with a persecuted church? Well, there have been quite a lot of things that we can learn from the persecuted church. Remember, these people have gone through the fires of tribulation. They've got a lot to teach us. And I think we should never think of, oh, I'm going to teach the people in, in the mission field. Well, in fact, many of these places, especially the persecuted church, they've got more to teach us than we've got to teach them, actually. Yes, we can take them things that they need. You know, they don't have access to the printing presses and, you know, we can give them digital Bibles and, and Christian books and study Bibles and all this. But um, honestly, uh, we should go there to learn. And the first pastor under whom I was converted and discipled, Reverend Doc Watson, he was also the first board member of Frontline for 16 years. He challenged me after my first cross-border mission to Mozambique, which was 1982. And Doc Watson said, Peter, many missionaries tell us what they've done. I would be more interested to hear what you've learned. And that profound challenge has continued to guide me for over 40 years of ministering to the Persky Church. I mean, what have I learned? And I thought, so, so what have I actually learned? Well, first of all, they need our prayers and our support. We commanded, remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Hebrews 13, verse 3. And inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Matthew 25, 40. So we are commanded to remember the the prisoners, the persecuted, and to pray for them and to do unto them as we would want to be done unto, as though we were doing it unto the Lord. And secondly, uh, we need to see how they fear God. And therefore, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were commanded, bow before this idol or while throw into the fiery furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends that Daniel respond, our God, whom we serve, is able to save us. And he will. But even if he doesn't, we still won't bow before your idols, nor will we serve your gods. And uh, I think that's a great lesson. Fear God, and then we are freed from the fear of man. Thirdly, we've got to love the word of God. We must memorize the word of God. As Sabina Vormbrandt, the wife of Romanian pastor Richard Vormbrandt, testified, before she went to prison, she was very poor. But once she went to prison, she became very rich. And this is because she was poor in the things of the world, but she is rich in the things of God. And so when she came to prison, she had the only currency that was of any value. She had stored up in her heart and mind the word of God, 
the Bible. And from her Bible memorization, she's able to make many people in prison rich. And I can also say experience outweighs theory. In fact, a, an ounce of experience is worth a ton of theory. After my first night in a filthy mosquito-ridden jail cell in Livingston, Zambia, I remembered the words of Richard Vaughan in his book, Tortured for Christ. And I said to other missionaries around me, <laughs> uh, you know, we're here uh, for the long haul. Let us learn the lessons that God's put us here for. And may God not release us one moment before uh, we've learned what he's put us in here for. And it, obviously, God can work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. They might meant this for evil, but we can uh, see how God will use it for good. And so as we were crammed into that prison cell in, in Lusaka Central, 15 feet by 20 feet, with vast amounts of prisoners crammed in all over. We had the opportunity to conduct Bible studies. Not that we had Bibles. I mean, taking our Bibles away. We had no sermon notes. We had no books. We had no notebooks. But whatever we had stored up in our mind and our heart, we could share. And it was amazing how much we could remember. And uh, although there was no electricity and no plumbing, um, neither did we have our Bibles, but we could share with our fellow prisoners what we'd memorized the scriptures, including during the day when we were allowed out into the courtyard. And so we had open-air services. But again, it just shows how important it is to memorize scripture. And uh, I've, I've just seen time and again, we need to listen to the persecuted. We need to learn from the persecuted. Uh, we need to uh, pray for the persecuted. And we need to serve them. There's just so much that we can learn from them. And uh, what I've learned is uh, how the sovereignty of God is so important. Uh, because just like in Revelation 19, uh, Revelation 12, verse 11, we hear, they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So how can we overcome Satan? By the atonement, by the blood of the Lamb, the helmet of salvation, and by the word of their testimony, the sword of the Spirit. But notice, it's not just the word of their mouth, it's the word of their testimony. It's not just so much that they know it in their head, uh, their heart, but they live it. It's, it's, it's in their life. They did not love their lives as much as to shrink from death. In other words, they loved God more than they loved their own lives. Well, over 40 years of ministering to persecuted Christians in Mozambique and Angola and Romania, Albania, Rwanda, Sudan, where severe persecutions raged, I've learned that it's possible not just to survive persecution, but to thrive in spite of it. And the principles I find that so critical is the sovereignty of God. We need to know that God is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He's everywhere present. He is sovereign. He will ultimately succeed. He will win. Those who fight against God will lose. We may not know the future, but we know uh, him who holds the future. We, can, we may not understand his will, but we can trust it. For if we share Christ's suffering, we will also share his glory. They can never take away the Bible that's stored up in your heart. So they might take away your physical Bible, but what you've got stored up in your heart and mind is the most precious of all. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of God. Prayer is our lifeline. Um, notice in Acts 4.31 that after they prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God boldly. So in the midst of suffering, only the reality of God in our lives will enable us to stand firm. So our personal relationship with the Lord is the root source of our strength and our courage. Therefore, we need to cultivate our devotional lives. And we need to learn to fear God not man. The fear of man's a trap. People pleasers make traitors. To fear the Lord frees us from the fear of man. There's only one God, but there's many men. And it's better to fear the one true God than to be enslaved by the fear of man. Jesus said, I will tell you whom to fear. Do not fear man who can only 
kill the body enough that he can do nothing else. But fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. That's whom you should fear. So we should stand firm. Uh, just like Joseph and David and Daniel refused to compromise their principles. They risked everything uh, by their obedience to the plans and purposes of God. And as a result, they did suffer persecution. But their faith remained steadfast and they persevered and God raised them up to rule over the land. And we need to also be steadfast and remain faithful to the word of God that we will no longer be infants tossed to and fro by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of doctrine uh, but and by the craftiness of men their deceitful scheming. And we need to exercise our faith just like you can stretch your muscles, you can stretch your faith as well. And we need to turn our stumbling blocks into stepping stones and crisis situations into opportunities and turn battles into victories. We're called to be more than conquerors, to be overcomers through Christ. And just as we need to exercise our bodies to maintain and increase our physical fitness, so we need to test our faith. We need to put our faith sometimes under stress and strain in order to train for godliness. You don't start studying the day the examination begins. You don't start training the day of the race. We cannot begin strengthen our faith on the day of crisis, we've got to be preparing uh, month and month out beforehand. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And I think that's what the Persecute Church can teach us. The martyr's crown is won by the solid work that was done in the months leading up to it and, and years and lifetimes of discipline. Dr. Hammond, what lessons can we learn from the Bible about enduring persecution? There is a lot that we can endure um, and learn from the Bible. Bear in mind, there's a lot of persecution in the Bible. Um, we're not just thinking of Joseph, who's betrayed by his own brothers, into slavery and then into prison, unjustly, of course. Um, you can think of Daniel in exile in a, in a, a far-off Babylonian capital and being expected to eat food off to idols and then a law is passed, you can't pray to anyone except the king and anyone who prays to any other god is going to be thrown to lion's den and and uh, he still stands firm. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told you've got to bow before this idol of Nebuchadnezzar or you'll be cast in the fiery furnace. Our God whom we serve is able to save us. And he will. But even if he doesn't, we still won't serve your gods. And nor will we bow before your idols. And so there's a lot of good examples and you can see how when the apostles were warned by the Jewish Sanhedrin and the high priest not to speak in the name of Jesus, what they say? Our God whom we serve is able to save us. We must obey God rather than man. You decide whether it is right in God's sight to obey God rather to obey man rather than God. We must we cannot stop speaking what we've seen and heard. We must obey God rather than man. And so again and again you can see this and, and there's Stephen being stoned to death because he would not uh, compromise on a stand. He kept standing for Christ and the Jewish inheritance has him stoned to death because of, of his stand. So there's a lot in the Bible that teaches us about persecution. The Apostle Paul and others whipped and beaten and stoned and treated awfully because of their stand for Christ. But uh, what we can learn from the persecuted church is that it's so important that we, we learn the importance of discipling every member. You see, hierarchical churches with a clergy-laity division could easily be infiltrated, manipulated, neutralized if you get the top structure arrested. You know, so top-heavy structures are easily decapitated. The Russian Orthodox Church has happened. They took all the ministers, 95,000 ministers in the 
Russian Orthodox Church, were taken to Solovetsky Island and shot dead after suffering a lot. Uh, that included the patriarch and everyone else. They just they killed them all from, from the top down. And with the entire leadership of the church um, taken out, 95,000 ministers of the gospel shot dead from the patriarch down. And then they closed um, 50,000 churches. There were 50,000 Orthodox churches in Russia in 1917. There were not even 200 left by 1941 uh, under Stalin. And so uh, you can just see how a hierarchical church can easily be neutralized. But they couldn't easily uh, close down every house church and every um, cell group of a congregational self-government decentralized church. And so a decentralized church um, where every member is trained to be um, a Bible-reading person and an evangelist, well, how do you actually close those churches down? And they meet in homes anyway. And so it's hard to identify. And even if you happen to get the head of their denomination, it's not going to change the local congregation or the local cell group. So top-heavy structures are more vulnerable to totalitarian infiltration and being decapitated. But churches that have flourished under persecution have invariably been those congregations with lay leadership where every member is either discipling others or being discipled themselves, evangelizing, then that church can remain effective, even under persecution. Each one reach one, each one bring one, each one teach one. That's a winning strategy. So evangelism can add to the church, but discipleship can multiply. The whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world. And that's what Ephesians 4 tells us to do, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up so that we may reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. So I do think home Bible study groups, prayer cells, these things are key. Um, in any time of state persecution, church leaders can be imprisoned, church buildings can be confiscated or closed, but there's always a far harder task to stamp out home Bible study fellowship groups and prayer fellowships so a congregation that depends upon their formal services in the church building are vulnerable. But congregations which consist of a network of prayer and Bible study groups that meet in homes are far more resilient in time of stress. Notice how often in the epistles and the book of Acts you read about the church that meets at the house. Greece also the church that meets at the house. In fact, early church was all home fellowships, really. And those are extremely hard to stamp out. Dr. Hammond, how can we prepare ourselves and others for persecution? We do need to prepare ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves by, first of all, knowing the Bible and memorizing a lot of the Bible and by being decentralized and being part of a Bible study and prayer fellowship. As Dr. Paul Negroot of Aradio, Second Baptist Church Aradio, which is now called Emmanuel Baptist Church, he said to me, Peter, we don't count our members by how many attend a church service on Sunday. We count our members by how many attend a Bible study and prayer fellowship, the midweek Bible study. And I think that's an interesting point because by that token, how many real members do we have? I know some mega churches in Cape Town that can't get 12 people to the prayer meeting. Um, they've got thousands in Sunday morning service. Now, if you took the Eastern Europe standard, uh, they've only got that dozen or so people who come for the midweek Bible study. Interesting. Uh, so I would certainly say um, if you want to prepare your congregation to endure persecution, they've got to be Bible readers. They've got to memorize the scriptures. Each one must reach one, each one must teach one, each one must bring one. Uh, we've got to have the attitude of the whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world so that even if the leader is taken away, the people underneath are not totally dependent on the leader. They've been trained. They can keep going. And I've seen this, whether we're talking about Albania, Romania, Czech, 
East Germany, Poland, all the way through Sudan, Congo, into Mozambique and Golo. Decentralized churches with lay leadership uh, where the people have Bible memorization can endure the best. And of course, the principle of standing firm and fearing God. So for example, just take those people who said, oh, you know, if only I could experience what's like to have persecution. And, you know, and they, they glamorize it maybe. But, well, we just had an opportunity like that during the lockdown lunacy masquerade madness. Where's your mask? Where's your certificate for getting inoculated? Did you get the jab and so on? Well, there was a good opportunity for us to learn to say no and uh, uh, to resist and to stand firm and to say, I've got a special medical condition. I need to breathe fresh air and uh, things like this. So um, it, it was a wonderful opportunity for us to just build in ourselves the principle of resistance where the government is saying, you must, you have to, you condemning your grandparents to death if you don't wear this mask and get this vaccination. I mean, this is just typical the way governments intimidate and, and that that's Marxism. There it was in our own streets all over the world simultaneously. Hundreds of thousands of churches closed down worldwide. Millions of churches, I think, closed down. In fact, the lockdown lunacy under the masquerade madness of the Wuhan Health Organization closed down more churches than Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin combined. I, Joseph Stalin, the Caesars of Rome, Muhammad, they couldn't have imagined closing down as many churches as the Wuhan Health Organization got with the cooperation of Christians. How many churches willingly closed down? And now I can say with confidence, because I've ministered amongst persecuted churches for over 40 years, I don't know any Christians in Eastern Europe who would have taken that. Um, okay, if they close your building and you can't meet in the building, so you arrange to meet in someone's house, you arrange to meet in the forest or whatever, but you, you don't stop meeting. And the idea that, oh, well, the government said we can't. Like, so what? Who cares what Caesar or Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh says? The important thing is what does God say? Forsake not the assembling together of one another. So we just had a trial run of the New World Order from 2020, trying to close down the church and look how many Christians said, okay, and think of the amount of energy that so many Christians put onto. <gasps> Sanitize, social distance, uh, mark down your, uh, like somebody's going to read what my uh, temperature was. And you, uh, how many forests got chopped down for the amount of paperwork which nobody ever read of you having to waste your time writing in there? My temperature was 36.4 something like who cares and so what and what a charade and what a waste of time but imagine if those church members who had never shown vigor in sharing the gospel with neighbors or with people who just come to church imagine if they put the same energy into ensuring people's names are written in the lamb's book of life as they ensured that they'd filled in the contact details for the covid cult or that they'd had their hearts cleansed by the grace of God and by the blood of Christ as opposed to the hand sanitized with this funny little who knows what. And uh, uh, if they taught as much distancing from the world, from the world's indoctrination industry and from the disinformation industry, for example, as they did with social distancing in the church, or put as much effort into communicating the gospel of Christ as it put into uh, the need for salvation by vaccination. I mean, it's COVID cults, branch COVIDians, you could call them, uh, they showed more energy and enthusiasm for this Wuhan Health Organization uh, world domination, globalized uh, indoctrination system than they've ever shown for fulfilling the Great Commission of our Lord Jesus. So, yes, how do we prepare people for persecution? Teach them to resist now. 
And I would say home education is one way. Uh, disconnecting from the world's media and entertainment industry, <laughs> defilement industry. Uh, all of these things can prepare, but the thing is we've got to become independent thinkers. We've got to think outside the box, and we've got to say no to the globalists and the new world order. Uh, Dr. Hammond, as you're both a missionary with experience serving the persecuted church and a writer, I imagine that uh, your two careers have overlapped. Very much so, yes, because you can imagine the frustration when you're being interrogated, you're being abused, or you see hideous things and I see churches burned down. I see the ashes where there was a pile of Bibles burned, uh, coming across scenes of church massacres, walking in churches like in Rwanda, knee-deep in corpses, even waist-high corpses in some places, 1,200 corpses in one church building, Natarama Church in Rwanda. And uh, walking in church with shrapnel scars on the walls and the roofs. And, oh, I mean, the things that I've seen, mangled bodies, and uh, destroyed churches. And uh, so how do you deal with this? Well, I knew I had to document this. I had to write about it. I had to get the dates, names, places, sequence events. And I wrote books like In the Killing Fields of Mozambique, uh, 40 pictures, 95 pages um, exposing what was going on. Because Mozambique was my first mission field. So I shared the testimonies of the Persecute Church that uh, people could know what was going on there, that I could speak up for them. And it just seemed wrong that the cruelty and the carnage of communism was not documented and somebody had to speak up for the victims and let people know about the scorched earth campaign, the man-made famine, the abuse of relief aid caused by the communist forces in Mozambique and enabled by the UN and others too. And I also include the story of my capture and prison experience in war zones in Mozambique in 1989. It was funny, at one point um, I was being um, by one of these characters. But on the table, they had a whole lot of our literature, which was interesting. I don't know where they got it from because we didn't travel with it. And at one point, this interrogator said, you're a writer? And I said, yes. He said, are you going to write about this? The smile. I said, every word. I could see if his face really looked suddenly sober. He has the idea that, oh, oh um, <laughs> uh, this could be documented sometime. Yes, I remember the, the Zambian special branch saying to me at one point, we can't treat you like we do our people because you've got a British passport. One day you've got to be released. And um, he said, but um, uh, we know what you don't like. So, of course, yes, they didn't put red-hot pokers into us. They didn't do things that left scars. But they knew where they could punch us, where it didn't leave any uh, bruises. And they knew that we hated filth. And so taking away our shoes and forcing us to walk barefoot amongst all this and putting us in cells covered in human filth and making taking your head and shoving it in buckets of urine and filth and all of that. Uh, so they knew how to get hold of us and to try and get us down. So, well, what do you do? Well, you've got to write about it. So I wrote In the Killing Fields of Mozambique. I wrote Holocaust in Rwanda, uh, which uh, that's 17 pictures, 65 pages. It's also as an e-book. And um, we've also had translated into French as well because the French were so heavily involved in uh, and even today, many of the architects of the Holocaust in Rwanda are living in Canada and France because we were holding the line for Francophone Africa against Anglophone Africa, said the French um, foreign minister. So, you know, how about that? It's okay if it's genocide done by French speakers. So uh, I knew we had to get this also published into French. And so I documented um, what happened in Rwanda. A Faith on Defiant Sudan was probably one of our biggest projects and... Say, uh, the first edition received death threat fatwas and uh, 
from the government of St. Hans. I thought, well, if they preached it so much, brought out a second edition, double the size, and then brought out a third edition, 320 pages over 200 pictures in both hard and soft cover and as an ebook and as a print on demand um, to really give the inspiring testimony some of the most unforgettable heroes of Sudan and their courage amidst carnage and cruelty. The largest country in Africa at the time and the longest war of the 20th century in Sudan. I think Faith and Defiance Sudan has been one of our all-time bestsellers, been through three editions and uh, uh, all the way up to 2010 when Sudan was on the cusp of becoming a free independent uh, country. Uh, so uh, Faith and Defiance Sudan also produced slavery, terrorism, Islam, historical roots and contemporary threat, uh, which also massive amounts of controversy, death threat, fatwas and so on. And so I brought out the second edition when the first edition sold out and third edition. And uh, it's now three times the size of the original first edition, about 300 pages, more than 200 and something pictures. And uh, this book, Slavery, Terrorism, Islam, has sold out so fast it's almost continually out of stock. And uh, uh, that's why we had to produce it also as an ebook and as print on demand. It's now even available on Amazon. So uh, lately, just this year, for the 40th anniversary of Frontline, I produced Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ as the first-hand eyewitness account of war and persecution during the tumultuous last 40 years, from the bush war in Rhodesia to the border war in southwest Africa and Angola to the killing fields of Mozambique, through capture and interrogation, imprisonment and smuggling behind the Iron Curtain, and the seven-year Jericho prayer march that led to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Iron Curtain, the revolution in Romania, the missions to Albania, which was the most atheist country in Europe at the time, Holocaust under, being under artillery fire, rocket fire, aerial bombardments, and so emphasizing especially the behind enemy lines. I did 128 missions behind, actually 140 missions behind enemy lines for the last 40 years, 38 countries, eight wars throughout Africa and Eastern Europe, and uh, so this book's now also print-on-demand and ebook. My father-in-law, Bill Bathman, we helped him produce this going through even if the door is closed, which gave uh, his ministry. My father-in-law was 67 years missionary to the Persky Church, especially in Eastern Europe. And uh, so we got going through even if doors closed, which went right up to the fall of the Berlin Wall, and then going on as the follow-up, which continued from the time the Berlin Wall fell to his ongoing work all over the world and Africa. And, um, and these are also now available as ebooks as well. And uh, we work and get them to be print on demand. So, yes, ministry in the field meant we saw, witnessed, and experienced things that most people didn't even know happened. That I knew I had the moral obligation, as did Bill Bathroom, to write about it, to record it, to get the photographs published, and to speak up for the persecuted and to mobilize more prayer and pressure on their behalf. So, yes, I would say the writing and the ministry really went together and we had to do both because seeing these things we had to report on it and reporting on these things uh, enabled us then to keep going back as more people saw the needs and what was going on and were inspired to help. Earlier in the show you said that one of the lessons you learned from the persecuted church was that they need our prayer and support. How can we best pray for the persecuted, Dr. Hammond? Well, I don't think most people have heard of uh, the imprecatory prayers but we really should be uh, praying in precatory prayers, and those are psalms of justice. And most people don't know about it, but uh, for those involved in ministering to Christians suffering persecution, the imprecatory psalms, or the prayers for justice, the war psalms of the Prince of Peace, you could call him, um, battling social evils and fighting for the right to life preborn babies, we need to see what an important weapon God has entrusted us with in the imprecatory psalms. And so the study of these psalms and 
uh, will not only inspire us, but guide our prayers for ourselves, our families, our congregations. Uh, I remember being quite uneasy when I first encountered prayers for judgments in the Psalms. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness. It's in Psalm 10. The Lord is king forever. The nations perish from his land. Why does the wicked man revile God? Hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. Encourage him. Listen to their cry. Defend the fatherless and the oppressed in all that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. How can we pray that? Well, it's even more clear. Uh, Pour out your wrath upon him, O Lord. Let your fierce anger overtake them. That's Psalm 69. O Lord, God who avenges, O God who avenges, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, pay back to the proud what they deserve. Break the teeth in the mouths, O God, let them vanish like water. Let the arrows be blunted. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. The men of the earth shall say, surely the righteous are rewarded. Surely there's a God who judges on the earth. And we started to see that these prayers for justice are to be prayed in Christ against his enemies. And it specifies who you're praying against, those who boast of evil, those who are disgrace in the eyes of God, those whose tongue plots destruction, those whose tongues are like a sharpened razor, those who practice deceit, those who love evil rather than good, those who love falsehood rather than speaking the truth, those who crush God's people, who slay the widow and the alien, who murder the fatherless. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those whom you cherish. You hate those who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men the Lord abhors. And so to these unrepentant enemies of God, the psalmist declares, surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies, of all those who persist in their sins. And so these prayers are for a purpose. It's so that it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules, to proclaim the power of God. All kings will bow down to him. All nations will serve him. Who knows the powers of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. So those are all quotes straight from the Psalms, uh, the middle book of the Bible, the prayer book of the Bible, the hymn book of the Bible. Yet despite the fact that 90 of the 150 Psalms include imprecations or prayers for judgment and invoking God's wrath against uh, evil, these prayers are pretty rare in the Western church. But amongst the persecuted churches, I've seen these prayers far more common. And so amidst the burned out churches and devastation of Marxist Angola, I found the survivors of communist persecutions including the crippled and the maimed and the widows and the orphans, praying for God to strike down the wicked and remove the persecutor of the church. And I was shocked, but it was biblical. And even the martyrs in heaven, what do they pray? Revelation 6 verse 10. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? How about that? The martyrs are praying for God to avenge their blood and to judge the wicked on the earth. And so... Uh, I've got examples of it, and we we can share them. In fact, it's in our books as well, and in the Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ book, where people in Romania prayed and saw the demolition of those who who uh, were persecutors of the church and uh, judgment and Angola, uh, where Agostino Neto stood up, this drunken, psychotic Marxist poet, and Agostino Neto said, I've destroyed the Bible. Within 20 years, there won't be a Bible left on the face of Angola. You will have to go to a museum to see what a Bible looks like. Well, <laughs> despite his wave of church burning, it was not Christianity that was eradicated in Angola, but Agostino Neto. And our mission alone has smuggled in more Bibles than there were when he made that ridiculous false prophecy. So I, I give examples of Mozambique and Rwanda and Romania and uh, 
and uh, you know the judging of Samora Michelle, the, the prayers of John Knox. So there's no doubt we can pray imprecatory prayers. And, and I've got some inspiring stories in our books of answers to prayer, incredible, earth-shaking, historic answers to prayer. When Christians pray the Psalms, how God can turn the situation around. And so, yes, spiritual warfare, a double-edged sword in our hands and a two-edged sword from our mouth. I think you've partially answered my next question, Dr. Hammond, which is what can ordinary people, ordinary Christians do on 13 November to celebrate or participate in, in, in IDOP? It's important. Uh, be informed, be interceding, be involved. Go on to the www.idop-africa.org website. So it's idop-africa.org website or idop-africa Facebook page or the frontlinemissionsa.org website. And you'll find videos and audios and PowerPoints and news items that you can use to inform and inspire and involve your congregation in speaking up for the persecuted, praying for the persecuted, praying in precatory psalms. So important that we get involved and that we mobilize our church and our friends and our school or our Bible study group and prayer fellowship or friends and neighbors or colleagues at work to remember the persecuted and to pray for the persecuted and to bring pressure on the persecutors. I mean, closing, Dr. Hammond. I'd just like to raise something that you mentioned last week when you recounted how Sabino Wurmbrandt exposed an undercover agent who was pretending to be a Christian, and she did so by asking him to pray. When he failed to do so, she responded by asking the man if he would like to show, if she would like her to show him how to become a real Christian, which I found very interesting as a response and goes to show that Christianity offers hope and redemption even to its persecutors. Yes, and you know, there are books out there like, I remember reading back in 1970s, Sergei, which is about a Russian uh, KGB man who was targeting and persecuting Christians who got converted and became a great evangelist for the Lord. And, and this is the thing we need to remember that the Apostle Paul, who God used to write so many of the books in the New Testament, he was the persecutor of the church, uh, Saul, and uh, he became the great Apostle Paul. We must not be afraid to, to share the gospel with our enemies. And I've had the chance to share the gospel and confront enemies of the gospel, persecutors of the church. But I've seen Muslims come to Christ. I've seen jihadists come to Christ. I've seen Muslim soldiers from Sudan coming south and saying, we want to become Christians. We want to fight for the south. I mean, imagine there was a whole company of soldiers who came over and they, they joined the south. They, they came over and chose to be converted and to, to join the south. Uh, these I've, I've met commanders uh, who used to be on the other side, including communist terrorists. I can mention uh, uh, Ndabazingi Musa who was a Zapu terrorist in Zimbabwe, and he was targeted to assassinate an um, evangelist in Rhodesia. And his terrorists were there. They were at his command. were going to throw the grenades and open fire at this tent evangelist. And he got so caught up in evangelistic message. He gave his life to the Lord. Um, he never gave the order for them to attack. And, uh, he, and I, I remember having a meal with him. At one point, we, we met at a hotel and. We were going through the buffet line, and I said, don't you want some meat? I saw you walk past, and he said, no, it reminds me of when I used to eat people. And I was thinking, I'm having supper with a cannibal. Um, of course, he's a converted cannibal, but still, um, I, I've met people who were on the other side who've been converted by the grace of God. So, yes, let's not hesitate uh, to share the gospel with our interrogators. Even when I've been getting interrogated, I've used opportunities to share the gospel and challenge them. And uh, I've got some of those amazing encounters, uh, like the man who introduced himself saying, I am the devil, 
when I was going in for interrogation at Mashava Security Prison in Maputo. So there's there's no a doubt that uh, uh, many of these enemies of Christ, the persecutors, by the grace and the power of God, can and will be converted because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Dr. Hammond, can you just quickly recap uh, the resources available to uh, the listeners? Yes, www.idop-africa.org or frontlinemissionsa.org. And remember, 13th of of November, the first, always the second uh, Sunday of November, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Uh, from Luke chapter 6, verses 22 to 23. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast you out, and cast out your name as evil, for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Thank you very much for joining us for From the Frontline. God bless, and good night.